The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I wanted to start today by just revisiting what I covered last week, um, and it's in the Sunday resources. I built a little page of notes on Thich Nhat Hanh's Five Principles for Mindfulness. It really has a lot to do with the nature of the mind, and I think it's okay to think of the whole path. You know, we're stabilizing present moment awareness, developing the sensitivity of the way it is in order to learn about the nature of experience, the nature of the mind. And it's the not knowing about the nature of experience, the nature of the mind, the way it is. It's the not clearly understanding that creates the ground for ignorance and attachment and all the infinite number of ways we get tight about things and suffer and then act out of that suffering in ways that just perpetuates more and more of the same. The violence, the injustice, all of that has causes. What are the causes for all the evils in our world today? They have to originate from the mind. So what is it in our mind? And what is the cause for those tendencies to be greedy, those tendencies to be hateful and afraid, those tendencies to be disconnected. What are the roots of that? One of our elders in the Western uh, early Buddhism in some meditation saying, Bhante Gunaratana, he's a Sri Lankan Buddhist monk, quite elderly now, but a wonderful teacher. And he has been the abbot of the monastery in West Virginia called the Bhavana Society. And, uh, in his very well-known book, Mindfulness in Plain English, he writes, Vipassana meditation or insight meditation is inherently experiential. It's not theoretical. In the practice of meditation, you become sensitive to the actual experience of living, to how things feel. You do not sit around developing subtle and aesthetic thoughts about living. You live. Vipassana meditation, more than anything else, is learning to live. And hopefully that's helpful for us because what it means is our laboratory for learning is always here. We don't need a different moment, a different life, a different set of circumstances. We're opening to this. And the problem is we just haven't been paying attention we haven't valued present moment reality. What we've learned, what we've been conditioned to value is our thought about things and our reactions to our thoughts and impressions and perceptions. So we're on this particular level of reality, you know, mental constructions, mental formations, mental fabrications, mental fashioning, you know, these are different ways that Sankara, this word in early Buddhism, gets translated. And it's a really important word. It's, it's kind of when we're living from a deluded point of view, there's karma, right? There's 
impressions laid down and that unfinished business just waiting to have its effect, we call sankara. And uh, in one analysis, one way of thinking about it, um, it's thought of as all of the supplies, the makeup, the props, and the other stagecraft that a theater company would have, right? And like keeping the curtains closed so you don't get a lot of the daylight and using lighting and using sound and using makeup and using props and and other things to concoct a little mini reality called the, the drama. And all of that unfinished business, all that unsettled activity and latent activity in our heart, energetically in the body, it's like the ground for us to keep making stuff up in which we use to scare ourselves, to entice ourselves, and we do it collectively, right? We're part of using each other for our collected, collective dramas, communal dramas, and on and on the world spins. Reacting to our reactions, we swing this way, and then that sets a motion in equal and opposite swing, like when you think about political social movements, back and forth. And the thing is, we haven't trained our mind to pay enough attention to this. So we stay stuck on the surface and where the mind is driven, is, is really governed and oppressed by this superficial level. So I read last week this quote from one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, but I want to return to it. And he's talking, this is from a book you can get online, Dhamma Everywhere, by Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese monk. Because the mind is covered by the defilements, right? these mental torments, conceits, self, ways of self-centered thinking. And remember the... One of the similes used in the early Buddhist tradition are these encircling vines that can initially start growing on the on the branches of those big tropical trees because there's enough humidity and maybe enough debris sitting there on the big you know branch and the vine just starts growing right there, drops its own roots down into the ground from the branch. And eventually, over many decades, and completely encircles the very large tropical tree. So now, the tree you see is just the complete encircling that's happened over many, many years of the vines built upon the tree. And that's the simile the Buddha uses for these defiling, tormenting, obscuring, Tendencies, these obsessive tendencies of our mind to want, to hope, to fear, to hate, to get distracted by um, to get distracted by experience or by aspects of experience that don't really lead anywhere or lead to more of the same, more distractedness. And so he goes on. He says, "Whatever's happening in the present moment is nature, is dhamma." Right, the way it is. Even defilements become dhamma, become nature, when they're seen clearly. 
He writes, Nature is arising, knowing is arising, and awareness is arising. Object and mind, object and mind, or something being known, something being known. In nature, there's nobody there. Nature is not us, not them, not other. Nature is just nature, i.e., this is nature. This is a natural process. There's no inner or outer, no this and that. It's just this conditional activity that's most easily summarized as something being known. We don't, I don't need a more sophisticated um, explanation for my subjective experience right now, which is the reality that I know, the reality that you know. It can get summed up as something being known. Something is being known. Something is being known. And this is what we mean by nature, this unfolding of the present moment, this activity is characterized by this simple something is being known. And he goes on in this passage to say, this experience that we're having, that we're always having is nature and nature is always willing to teach the mind. It's our teacher. We just have to pay enough attention. We have to stabilize present moment awareness so that there's some integrity to the knowing. We're not trying to make experience fit our preconceived ideas about what's happening, who I am, how this is about me. We're stabilizing present moment awareness so we can see things clearly. and kind of break through the spell or break through the infatuations that we've picked up along the way. So this is uh, what I covered last week, and I want to review it because we went through it relatively quickly, and I think it's something to keep in mind, and this little cheat sheet is in the Sunday resources, so you can um, take a look at that when you get a chance. Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk who died recently, his five principles of mindfulness from his book, Transformation and Healing, which was on the Buddha's Anapanasati discourse, the discourse on mindfulness of breathing. And he wrote this book several decades ago. So the first is these five principles. The first principle is all dhammas, all phenomena, all experiencing, is mind. And let's, as you hear, as we hear these five this morning, let's just reflect that whatever it is that the mind is experiencing, instead of the usual interpretation that the mind projects onto its experience, we'll just have a sense that this experience that's being known is being known here in the mind. It is in the nature of the mind, or at least there's this capacity of the mind to know that this is being known. And that's all that's being known. And anything that the mind wants to add on to this moment, that's just something being known as well. So all dhammas are mind. This is mind. This is a moment of mind. 
And we don't have to presume anything else. And if we do presume something else, that's mine too. And you don't have to like this. <laughs> this is just the way it is. And it's just, a, you know, a way to think of this is we're just trying to get grounded, get honest, be more clear. Because we've embellished our experience as a human being to the point that we're quite deluded and we end up being completely stressed out trying to maintain and protect the embellishments that have developed over time about what we're taking this to be. So one way to think about Dharma practice, the Buddhist teachings and practices is just coming back to more simple, natural way of being, way of relating, way of understanding that's in line with the truth of the moment as opposed to the truth of our embellishments that have been picked up and developed and entangled over time. So we're dragging along this edifice that I call me and mine and the way I think it is, and it's an oppressive weight because we feel unconsciously, I got to defend it because it's who I am, what I think is true. I'm constantly trying to make everything fit, something that is in a way, you know, just to be a bit provocative, it's an abomination of, you know, of reality built upon one little lie after another until it becomes the big lie. And then we're codependently maintaining each other's big lies until we bump into a set of practices, teachings and practices that invite the mind back gradually. It's a, you know, it's a, painful at times, but profoundly liberating rewiring of the mind toward a more grounded, simple, direct, immediate, clear, natural way of seeing and framing and understanding and being. And it's all about what is shed, what is let go of, letting go of what is not the way it is, not true. The second principle that Thich Nhat Hanh has to observe is to be one with the object of observation. And again, we can check that out right now, even as I continue to talk. To observe is to be one with the object of observation. And we're just noticing that in the activity of observation and the activity of knowing we might presume and then project, construct the idea of the observers here, any idea of location, like I'm here as the observer, somewhere slightly behind my eyes or you know whatever we think, slightly in the chest, behind the heart. However we frame it, that sense of being the observer, however we locate it, that's just an experience that's being known. It's not the truth. It's just a habit that's happening here and now and that can be observed with everything else that can be observed. And so when it comes right down to when we get really cultivate that stability and inner integrity in that experience of knowing it's like this now, 
then there isn't a distance between the observer and the object being observed. So whatever experience you're knowing now, and you could just choose something ordinary like feeling your buttocks against the chair or whatever, the knowing of those sensations that you feel, like the sensations of contact or pressure or maybe coolness or warmth, the knowing and the warmth that's being known or the pressure that's being known. You see, the knowing is right there with the experiencing. They're not two things. But in language, we talk about them as two things. That's okay. You know, language is inefficient in that way. It's just an approximation. It's a way that we can share and link up our experiences together. But we get messed up by the inefficiencies of language. And we begin to trust the stories, the worlds that our language, our imagination constructs more than our direct experiencing. And Dharma practice is a way of correcting that. And these principles are just the use of language, a skillful use of language. Like, okay, let's check these out. So you could print this sheet up and you could review it before a set. Not that you have to think about these things, but they're a kind of corrective, a reframing that will make an impression on how we relate to the present moment. So all dhammas are mind, all dharmas are mind. To observe is to be one with the object of observation. And the third is the true mind and the deluded mind are one. Our two minds, the evil mark, and the wise mark, you know, that's what we think. It's like, oh, you got me in a bad day. You know, you got the evil mark or the deluded mark or the needy mark, you know, the emotionally overwhelmed mark or the numb, frozen, emotionally frozen mark or, you know, the self-centered mark, not the wise and beautiful mark. And, you know, there's so much of our shame and guilt and the way that we shame and guilt trip others comes with this belief, this wrong belief that there are these different, you know, selves, I guess you could say. And we're trying to be the right self and not the bad self. And this is the thing about understanding the experience of awareness, mindful awareness, present moment awareness, this wisdom awareness, it's the great equalizer because absolutely everything becomes something being known, something being known. And in that way, it's the great neutralizer. It doesn't turn things into better than, worse than, good, bad, in, out, here, there. It's just this being known this being experienced, this being felt. And because of that, we have the fourth principle, mindfulness is the way of no conflict. Mindfulness is the way of no conflict. And this is something we can directly check out, check out right now. When we're present with our body sitting in the chair or present with the experience of hearing presence, just present with 
the totality of the of the moment, what's coming and going, what's moving. That balanced, clear, non-judging presence is really the definition of love, of kindness. I mean, when we think about it intellectually, if we had to define what what is the essential characteristic of love, of that goodness, whatever you want to call that goodness, that benevolence, that friendliness, we would say probably if we thought about it and checked out, observed carefully, we would say something like the essential trustworthy nature of love is that it it knows how to include, it, it knows how not to be afraid, it knows how not to condemn, not to have to throw something out of my heart because it doesn't belong. Because the very nature of love is to understand how this too can belong. And when we see something terrible going on, we don't feel like I have to throw it out of my heart. We understand, oh boy, that's terrible. And any mind associated with that terrible act is probably a suffering mind. And I care about that. And I care about all the reverberations of that. I care enough to have an honest, felt sense of it and to allow that honest, felt sense to lead to some kind of response if there is some kind of appropriate, useful response. It's like we're willing to enter the natural process of the moment. And the great gift is we're bringing as much clarity and intimacy because an appropriate response depends on that exposure of being clear and intimate and including, not condemning, not rejecting, not thinking all the evil stuff, you're over there, all the good stuff is over here, good riddance, you know, but I'm with this camp, I'm with the good camp. And all that evil stuff, well, I'm hoping you just burn yourselves down, you know, and eliminate each other. (laughs) Because I'm not going to get contaminated with that evil stuff, that bad stuff, right? That's what we do. We do it within our own heart, let alone in our communities and our families and our world, where we isolate, we, you know, it's like we want to isolate the cancer, and then beam down some radiation on it or, you know, try to get the chemicals just in the place where the evil ones are. And I'm not you know, saying I wouldn't use chemotherapy or radiation therapy if I had cancer. I'm just saying that there might be a more profound, a more useful way to relate to our world than to see it in terms of good and evil. And even when we find maybe a time when good and evil is a useful way of framing things, we're not confused. Like it's a relative, it's a temporary way of dealing with the situation. But we know that it isn't the ultimate truth. It's just a necessary truth right now that this has to be done. I think about that when, you know, dogs that have been mistrained and then bite somebody and then have to be killed, you know. And maybe that's a necessary thing. I don't know. I don't want to really weigh in. I prefer not to have to weigh in. 
that I could see that sometimes that's what has to happen because we don't know what else to do. I've used poisons at time in my home for ant infestations. I really don't like doing that. I feel badly about that. I don't think it's right to use poison. I really don't. And yet, there have been a few times that I've used it because of some concern about the house. And uh, I don't need to go into the details, but just that it's, it's part of the brokenness of the world we live in. And the last um, point, so let me just go through all five. So all dhammas are mind, all experience, phenomena are mind. To observe is to be one with the object of observation. True mind and deluded mind are one. Mindfulness is the way of no conflict. And the last, fifth, observation, not indoctrination. Because we can even misuse, like, a wise person like Thich Nhat Hanh distills his understanding for us. He's a good writer, poet. He puts it in a book for us to use. And it should be so easy to misuse it, to kind of take the first four as a kind of dogma. All dhammas are mind, I tell you. <laughs> and if you say something other, you know, bad you as opposed to realizing like whatever judgment arises, oh, that's just another moment of mind. There isn't actually, you know, in the way my mind wants to frame it, an evil one out there who has an opposing view. So observation, not indoctrination, this really points to the Buddhist teachings that there's really no place for fixed views. All of the useful information, the useful pointing out instructions and guidance we get from our wise elders, they're what we call skillful means, something to use. And because we're starting our practice necessarily as deluded beings, because non-deluded beings, they don't need to practice. So we're deluded beings, so we need these skillful means. So all teachings are skillful means, they're counterweights to the habit in the mind to misunderstand, to misframe experience. So the teachings aren't any sort of truth, they're a counterweight to the delusion, the tendency to misinterpret, misperceive, and misunderstand. It's an intervention for a deluded mind. And we should use the teachings in this way. It's not something to cling to or even to think of as holy or sacred. I mean, it's totally, totally appropriate to be respectful and to be grateful for wise teachings that we get, you know, that we can use and find useful and really help us become a wiser, kinder human being. But the thing of real beauty is the wisdom and the kindness, not the teaching. The teaching was a, a useful tool that we can either misuse by clinging to it and judging other people with it because you don't get the idea that I get. I got the right idea. I don't know what idea you have, but I got the right one. <laughs> I mean, this happens even within Buddhism, of course. It's everywhere. It's so endemic. 
And uh, if we just take a little step back, it's so ridiculous. It so misses the point that my heart is tight and entangled and hurting. And what can I do about that? And your heart is probably tight and entangled and hurting too. And what we, can we do together to not feed that beast of tightness and hate and fear and greed? This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. And one of the things I love about him and just had been enjoying using some of his teachings just as a way of honoring his wonderful life of teaching for so many decades. But one of the things I really love is just his very natural way of infusing love in the deepest teachings. And this is uh, from one of his earlier books, The Sun, My Heart. <laughs> it's a very sweet book. And it's in the section called Darkness Becomes Light. So I'll just read a couple paragraphs here. <clears throat> from time to time, you may become restless and the restlessness will not go away. At such times, just sit quietly, follow your breathing, smile a half smile and shine your awareness on the restlessness. Don't judge it or try to destroy it because this restlessness is you yourself. It is born, has some period of existence and fades away quite naturally. Don't be in too big a hurry to find its source. Don't try too hard to make it disappear. Just illuminate it and you will see that little by little it will change, merging, becoming connected with you, the observer. And this is, he's making the same point we talked about a moment ago. Any psychological state which you subject to this illumination will eventually soften and acquire the same nature of the observing mind. Now, this is something we can check out on our own, and I really encourage, I might have mentioned this last week, but when we're with experience and we're getting some momentum, some samadhi, some continuity of present moment awareness, we'll notice that the observing mind and the object being observed have the same characteristic, openness, a sense of space, a sense of being ephemeral, not so, not as substantial as we might have imagined. The pain that was there a few moments ago now has more this characteristic of space and movement and not fixed. So even the word, my knee pain, it's sort of like I know what I mean by that if that thought were to arise. Oh, this is my knee pain? Like, whoa, it's almost like space. I still know there's knee pain. I sort of know it's unpleasant, but it's not what I not what I thought it was. As I brought that stability of present moment awareness to my knee pain, it it just wasn't what it was a moment ago. And it brings to mind a funny story. One of my really important teachers, Joseph Goldstein, this is something he has used a lot and somebody uh he put it in a book too, I think, and then somebody quoted him here. Um, but some student of Joseph in a one-to-one -one interview during a retreat said, I just had a terrible ex experience. I was meditating. I felt tension in my jaw. And suddenly I realized what an uptight person I am, how I can't get close to anyone, and that I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. 
and Joseph being such a wonderful, unshakable teacher, you know, you can just, I can just imagine knowing him well, you know, just was there and responded, you mean you felt some tension in your jaw? <laughs> you know, just sort of grounding it like, yeah, there was that experience of some, you know, unpleasant sensation in some part of the body. And the man plowed forward saying, I'm pretty sure I'll be tense. I'll never change. I feel hopeless. And Joseph responded, you mean you felt some tension in your jaw? I just keep grounding. Because that's that tendency, mental formations, that embellishment, that fashioning, that fabrication, that construction. That's the very nature of delusion, is that it constructs meaning not based on reality, but based on habit. That's really important. And of course, what the mind constructs is something, but it isn't reality in the way the mind imagines it is. It's a construction. In the same way that a really good theater production or a really good movie is a fabrication. And very believable. Even when we know we're watching a movie, I was watching a really good British spy drama recently, and uh, and I just noticed, like, I'm really tight. <laughs> I was tight about the drama. I was tight about wanting to know how it's going to turn out. I was tight in any number of ways. And it was a silly, you know, and I don't, when and I don't have a TV, we just have our little laptops. So, you know, whatever that is, a nine-inch screen. But totally believable, you know, even though we know better. So how much more the kind of fabrications our mind itself constructs, you know, because it's like the screen is the mind itself. So, um, you know, the Joseph, I don't know if he said this, I think he did say this to the man eventually, you know, as he kept wanting to go back to what he was fabricating, like, how the tension in his jaw represented this very compelling story about how as a human being I'm totally screwed. I'm so mixed up. I have so much neurotic habit energy. I live in a neurotic culture. I don't have enough supports. I'm totally screwed, you know. And uh, Joseph said to him something like, you're having a painful experience. Why are you adding a horrible story? Maybe it's enough just to know tension in the jaw feels like this. It's just this experience being known. Doesn't mean it's pleasant. And part of that just being with that is to feel all of that constructing, like how the mind wrongly thinks that if I construct a story around the pain, I'll somehow figure something out so the pain goes away. But what we do is we construct a hell realm. And we don't seem to learn that lesson because the hell realm is so compelling. We don't get outside enough, outside of it enough to notice how suffering, how much suffering there is to it. Let me just read a few more sentences from Thich Nhat Hanh. He writes... Just continuing from where I left off. Throughout your meditation, keep the sun of your awareness shining, like the physical sun with which lights every leaf and every blade of grass 
Our awareness lights are every thought and feeling, allowing us to recognize them, to be aware of their birth, duration, and dissolution without judging or evaluating, welcoming, or banishing them. It is important that you do not consider awareness to be your ally, called upon to suppress the enemies. Right? And we use this sometimes, so like staring down our negative thoughts or our painful sensations. Do not turn your mind into a battlefield. Do not have a war there. For all your feelings, joy, sorrow, anger, hatred are part of yourself. Awareness is like an elder brother or sister, gentle and attentive, who is there to guide and enlighten. It is a tolerant and lucid presence, never violent or discriminating. It is there to recognize and identify thoughts and feelings, not to judge them as good or bad or place them into opposing camps in order to fight with each other. And I think this is a useful place to end is just this, um, it is a skillful fabrication, but we're fabricating, we're using this idea that abiding in this place of open, stable, non-judging, present moment awareness, to really it's okay to have a useful story, like call that wisdom and love. Call that, like in later Buddhist traditions, they called it Buddha nature. The key is you don't have to cling to it. You don't have to make it something that like, I'll cling to this in order to get away from that. Because we lose it as soon as the mind feels it has to cling to it. It's already here and now. And it's more about what's not there than what's there. It's more about dropping the fixation, dropping the attachment and identification with the dramas, the mental constructions, and just realizing it's just another thing. As Ajahn Amaro, another one of our elder teachers, a British Buddhist monk, says, just another thing in the forest. There are mushrooms and there's moss and their trees and their creatures. It's just another thing. Okay, in this sort of conditional, lawful, natural process, we call this, this moment, this reality. Really nice to be together, really appreciate the Buddhist teachings and coming together to learn from these, I find, really powerful transforming teachings so again, just an encouragement, if you'd like to print out a copy of those five principles from Thich Nhat Hanh, maybe just one of them is enough to just have rolling around in your mind and just pull it out all day long and just see how it invites a more clear, intimate, radically new way of being in the moment. That's the whole point, right? To facilitate seeing what we haven't seen before. And let's see, there are a couple of announcements I wanted to make. Um, Shelly Graff is going to do the half-day retreat, lead that on Saturday, May 7th. So that's coming up next Saturday. I'll lead a day-long retreat on Saturday, the 28th of May. So keep those in mind. And uh, Shelly and Stacy McClendon are going to be leading a three-week introduction to mindfulness meditation. 
If you're new to practice or just want a refresher, that will be May 17th through the 31st. So three Tuesdays, the 17th through the 31st. So just encouraging people to stay for the small group. It's really a great way to get to know the community. The discussion today could be about just your own recognition of the present moment as a natural process. And just that dance between the habit of having a self-centered way of framing what's going on in the moment and then how you've learned to use a more naturalistic, oh, it's just a natural process, of course. And just that gravitational pull back to the habit of a self-centered framing and getting more comfortable with experiencing any moment as just a natural process, like raising your kids. Oh yeah, it's just a natural process, impersonal causes and conditions. Like when you see your own parenting, your parents coming through you as the parent. Oh yeah, it's just a natural process. It's not me being a rotten parent or me being a good parent. It's just the way it is. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.